This is the Daddy Saturday Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Daddy Saturday Podcast. So excited to be here with you today with a very special guest, someone that I've admired and looked up to for quite some time, one of my digital mentors, as I would call him, and had the chance to meet him recently at the Rise Business Conference. He is none other than Dave Hollis. So, so excited to have Dave on the podcast today. Dave is the husband of Rachel Hollis. Alongside Rachel, they run the Hollis Company. Dave is a former Disney executive where he was the head of Walt Disney Studios distribution. And Dave has four children and just an amazing dad, an amazing businessman, and most recently just launched his brand new book, Get Out of Your Own Way, which we're going to talk about here today on the podcast. Dave, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to be here. Well, let's jump right into it. I, I've read the book and I really want to highlight a couple of specific areas. And, you know, you just, man, you touch on so many concepts that, that are going to resonate with my audience of mothers and fathers, but particularly the fathers that are listening. And I want to dive in deep to some of these core areas. But before I do that, I want to ask you more of a broader question, if it's okay, if I have your permission to start maybe on a, on a more vulnerable note to ask you, so you've written the book. You've been serving your community through coaching. Your coaching platform's fabulous. You've got events going. You've been putting out amazing, thoughtful content during this time, and you've been extremely engaged in your own personal growth. But what's coming new for you that maybe you haven't been vocal about or something that um, maybe is causing you apprehension at this moment? Well, I mean, in real time, we're recording this on March 25th. The world has changed dramatically in just a handful of weeks, and there's a lot of uncertainty for every single human who is listening to this, no matter when you're listening to it, because of what's happening with this virus and the way that it's changing the way that we do life. And as a person who is a pragmatic, practical person who likes to manage a little bit of my own or anyone else's expectation, there is no ability to manage expectations in a world where there's a lot of unknowns that exist. And so I've had to do a lot of work recently on really focusing on the things that I can control in a world of way more things that I cannot control, which is hard. In some ways, there's been a man, such a gift that is afforded in illuminating how uncontrollable almost everything always was. There's like this hubris in believing that there is control until you are you know, in a situation like this, reminded of how little you actually can control. And so, you know, I've had to do more work on my mindset, more work on my perspective, more work on staying true to my habits and routines so that I can create a sense of normalcy and stay connected to the things that I can control in what feels like uncontrollable times. I love that, Dave. And I think it's such a great segue into the book because that's really where the genesis for the book, as I understand it, came from, right? You were a person who really didn't believe in personal growth for a long point in your life and hadn't done a lot of deep work, but now you're a student of personal growth and have done an immense amount of deep work. And it's great to hear that you're still doing that. So as I dive into the book and I look at one of the, the initial chapters that just hit me. It was chapter five. And the, the title of that chapter is I did something wrong. So I am something wrong. And man, Dave, that resonated with me because I talked to a lot of fathers, a lot of dads out there. And the one thing that I hear often is I'd rather do nothing than do it wrong. Therefore, I do nothing. And man, that chapter resonated with me. So talk to me a little bit about your conclusion to some of the tips about you feeling like you did something wrong. So that reflects on who you are as a, as a man, as a husband, or even as a father. 
Well, the first thing, whoever needs to hear this, the attempt to only do things right is a fool's errand. It is an impossibility. So if you're actually game planning your life, your relationships, the way you parent around a, a, an idea that you can exclusively traffic in things that you only do right, you're wrong. Sorry to break it to you, but it's just an impossibility. Uh, number one. Two, I had to really stay connected and get in touch with this idea that I am enough, I am worthy, I am a good person, even in the times when I make mistakes and that mistakes inevitably, no matter how hard I try, no matter how many good routines or habits I end up putting in place, me doing something wrong is just a part of my life. I can try and do fewer things wrong. I can try and learn from my mistakes faster. I can work on contrition or apology in a way that can be received by the people that I've done something wrong to in a manner that they can receive it. But I'm going to make mistakes. But my having made mistakes mistakes doesn't indict me as being someone who is broken or bad. And the interesting thing in the storytelling in the book, almost every chapter involves something that I at one point carried shame for, or that I was embarrassed of, or that I certainly never, ever thought that I'd put on paper for anyone to read for the rest of time. And yet, the power in owning the things that I had the opportunity now to learn from, in owning the mistakes that I've made and the triumph in having overcome ways that I was getting in my own way has become a platform of power from which I can now deliver the legacy of the rest of my life. And so uh, if you've done something wrong, I mean, guess what? Number one, you're human. So take heed in the solidarity that exists that you and the rest of the people who are listening to this have also done something wrong, um, but that it doesn't make you a bad, it doesn't make you a bad person. What would make you a bad person is to do something wrong and have no appreciation or self-awareness for having done something or an understanding of the kind of impact of your transgression and how it may have affected the lives of the people around you or no attempt to learn from having made a mistake so that you could apply the learning to you becoming a better version of yourself tomorrow. And I can tell you as someone who was stuck, like stuck in a ditch, some of the times where I stayed connected to this idea that I did something wrong, so I was someone who was wrong, it was immobilizing. It was something that had me kind of running in place. And it wasn't until I was comfortable acknowledging the places where I struggled, raised my hand and became comfortable acknowledging that I needed help, found a way to find community that would change a little bit of what felt like an isolating, am I the only one kind of thing where shame can fester and grow, that I was able to get the help, see my story and the stories of other people, and find ways through that community and empathy to get out of my own way. So uh, if you've done something wrong, own that you've done it. Find someone who can help you remedy the situation, make uh, an attempt to apologize. Con you know, contrition is a good thing. Um, and own it when you have, but don't wear it as something that indicts you forever as being a bad or wrong person. That's so good, Dave. And I love the point about asking for help. And I think that's where as, as dads, as fathers, so many of us struggle because it's like we didn't get a field manual for fatherhood, right? You don't receive that. And the only example we often have are our fathers or potentially lack thereof a father in our life. And so we go into this fatherhood mode and, and typically being a man, we have an ego and we have pride and we're not willing to check that at the door. So then we create this isolation mentality where it's like we got to do this all on our own. And I love how you talked about being vulnerable and asking for help and changing the way you ask for help and being okay receiving help in areas of your life. Yeah, it is an interesting thing. And everyone who was raised, obviously, differently. And some of listeners here had uh, male role models, you know, family of origin, your father, whoever it might be, your father figure, who may have modeled something that represented help 
being something that didn't in any way represent uh, a, a weakness or that in some ways you hadn't yet figured it all out. But for me, and I think for a lot of people, uh, and this is no slight against my dad, my dad's rad. I love my dad. Um, but I did not, against the lens of masculinity or the way I was raised, think that asking for help was uh, the thing that good men, real men, uh, tough guys do. And so I resisted asking for it, for it, you know, potentially casting me in a way that said, oh, I wasn't uh, made perfect. I wasn't built the right way. I, I don't have what he has. I, I don't have what it takes. And the headline uh, in my journey of having had a lot of success and then finding myself stuck in this strange midlife threshold between 30 and 40 was I had to make a choice, either stay stuck at the risk of my relationship with my wife and being close to my children, or ask for help. And pride and ego, man, those are tough things to have to grapple with because uh, they are entwined in our identity and the imprint from how we were told and taught to be a man or a woman, for that matter, and how uh, asking for help says something about us is a thing that we have to work against from a muscle memory standpoint. But uh, if you are in a place as a listener who is feeling stuck, if you are in a place where you are struggling with something and you think that it will get better by keeping it hidden, if you think it's going to get better by not asking for help and you're looking for someone to offer an alternative point of view, let me be that person, you are wrong. You will not have it just magically go away. It will not just get better. Your relationships will not grow closer. You will not become stronger for having thought of coping mechanisms in a different way magically. You are likely going to have to ask for help. And there ain't nothing wrong with that because the only people who get help are the people who are willing to ask for it. That may, in fact, be the manliest thing that someone could do. We talk in, in another chapter, I believe it's a chapter right after that about failure. And I think the two really tie together well in that by asking for help, oftentimes that's one way that you can recover from or move forward from a failure. And in the concept of Daddy Saturday, we talk about being the guide to your children rather than the hero. Because if you're the hero to your kids, they don't experience failure or success on their own. And oftentimes they get into adulthood never experiencing failure and they've got no mechanism to cope with it. And it can be catastrophic, right? Because failure at eight is way different than 28. And so having your kids fail early and helping them through that as their guide is, is a great way to ensure that you raise good kids that become productive and great adults. And you tell this story in that chapter. I remember about um, Jackson. I think he was running for like uh, student body president of his elementary school or something, right? Um, yep. And the story of failure. So tell me about that story a little bit and, and maybe what, how you served as a guide to Jackson through that process of failure. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. When you first become a parent, you, at least for me, I thought that the only role I would have, it was being a champion of their success, of them uh, being the one who was receiving the trophy, standing on the platform, getting the accolade. That was my job to uh, engineer as many opportunities for them to win as I possibly could. And it took, uh, we have four kids like you do, uh, like it's a million kids. But <laughs> the, the, the thing that I have been the beneficiary of as an adult, learning how important failure was for me for the opportunity to grow, it's reframed the importance that it needs to be inside of my role as a parent to expose my kids to it. And how I would have, man, had such a gift if I was exposed, almost like immunotherapy, in smaller doses as I was, you know, growing up to not having failure be such a taboo the way that it ended up being until I had to unlearn some of it. My son, who at the time was like nine years old has decided that he is going to run for class president in his elementary school. He has made posters with the slogan, Better Together, 
I mean, with a campaign slogan like better together, how in the world could this human not win? I don't know. And here he is putting his all into it. He is an achiever like his mom and dad. He is wired for achievement and he wants so badly to win this race. And here uh, I'd been someone who, as an achiever, also ran twice for presidents of classes. I also twice put everything into it. And I also twice lost the race for president both times. And in that humbling experience had the benefit of seeing how failure in both of those instances could be for me. And I grappled as a dad with a very weird question the night before the election, do I want this boy, my firstborn son, to ascend to the throne of fourth grade president, or do I want him to lose for the benefit of early on in his life, getting the sweet lesson of defeat? And so I was conflicted, and I had to have a very, very frank and real conversation with him because he asked me, what if I lose at the beginning of his decision for campaigning? And I said, well, what if you do lose? Who cares? It is not going to be a mark on your permanent record. You will not lose face. You've done something by putting yourself into the game that anyone who might judge you has not yet done. You are, you're trying, you're, you're attempting something. Uh, so he does end up campaigning. He does end up creating those great campaign signs. And though Better Together should have won him an election, he lost. And in the loss, we got to have so many better conversations about how that loss was preparing him for the way life would meet him throughout his life and how in that loss we got to talk about what he learned he could have done differently and in that loss how he responded to his worry of what other people were thinking and if you're a parent who is engineering wins if you're a parent that thinks the thing your kid needs more than anything is making them feel the pride of victory i will offer that though they may enjoy that short term that long-term, the benefits of them appreciating how to handle defeat, the, the appreciation of what they might learn and equip themselves with out of failure is likely long-term what they need. It, it may not be what they want. Many times the things that my, that my kids need are not in fact the things that they want. But if you ask yourself through the lens of what they need, they need to experience failure and you encouraging them to put, them in place, put themselves in places where they will fail for the opportunity to destigmatize it as being a negative is as important at nine as it is at any time. Because man, once you get to 29, it's hard to learn for the first time that failure is for you. If you've had 20 previous years of failing experience, you'll process it in a way that is truly what it is. It is rich information. It is just giving you the insight into how you could have approached it differently or better, where you still need to work on something to actually do the work well. And uh, it's, I mean, it's informed as much as, you know, running for president isn't the thing we're doing inside of this office. I have this conversation with our team on an almost everyday basis because the ambition for where we are trying to take the company is something that none of the leaders of our team currently have the skills to sit at the leadership table four or five years from now. And that includes myself, right? Like I am not yet equipped. They are not yet equipped because they haven't failed through and learned enough about the kind of things that we are going to try and take on. And your kids haven't either. So the more that they can experience failure and take the learnings from failure, the more equipped they will be to handle the five years from now version of themselves. That is gold right there. You just taught a parenting seminar in under five minutes. Phenomenal. <laughs> 
phenomenal, Dave. Thank you for that. And I think that's what parents today need to hear. And especially in the tumultuous times that we're under, right, it's even easier to want to protect our kids from all that's going on around them and then kind of shelter them from some of that as they go forward. So by allowing them to fail and build that mentality and that mindset today of how you move forward from failure and fail faster and learn from those things, it's only going to serve them better when they get into adulthood. So spot on, love it, great content. And, you know, as I'm thinking about failure, I think failure really is, in terms of a parent, allowing your kids to fail. It's because you're comfortable in your own identity, right? I know a lot of parents may live vicariously through their children, and so it's hard for them to do that. And that brings me into another chapter that I really wanted to dive into because my wife is an entrepreneur like yours, and there are many times where she says that she got her MRS degree in college, but then I turned around and got my MR degree after college, right? Because she's uh, making it happen in the in the business world, and I had to take a backseat in my career many times to that. And you've done the same thing to a larger extent than I have. And you've done it with grace. You've done it so well. You've supported your wife. You left your career. And I think there's a lot to learn from you in that capacity. And a lot of the men listening need to hear that part of your story because it's powerful. And many men, again, are not comfortable enough in their identity, the pride, the ego to allow their wives to step forward or to be a partner in something like you and Rachel have done. So talk me through a little bit about how you came to this conclusion that if they don't need me, they won't want me. And then the tips for how you reverse that in your own mindset. Yeah. So the book, if you're not familiar, it's structured in uh, 20 stories, 20 lies that I once believed that kept me in my own way. That in uh, finding the evidence of the unbelievability of each of these lies afforded me freedom to live a better life. And uh, I think there's some things in each of these lies, each of these stories, that you, the reader, will end up finding some of yourself inside of some of these stories. This story, if she doesn't need me, she won't want me, was something that was wholly and totally unexpected until it was a thing. And that I, as a part of my identity for the better part of 13, 14 years of our 15 years of marriage was the primary breadwinner in our family. I am eight years older than my wife. We met inside of traditional business environments, but she became an entrepreneur not long after we were married and spent all of that time building a small business that now, yes, we are running together, but during the course of the first 10, 12 years of our marriage, had the kind of ebbs and flows that any small business might. Well, my career more or less went on a trajectory that had me starting as a coordinator at Disney and 17 years later had me leaving as the president of distribution. So I was on a line, a curve that was going up and to the right. She was on, you know, like a, a little more of a, a swing as it were. She built this business. And for me during that time that I could be a backstop to her taking chances in her business as she saw an opportunity and she wanted to dive into a new part of the business that she had yet previously not uh, tested. If it didn't work out, there was always the security of my paycheck, of my provision for our family as the thing that we could lean on. And that role was ingrained in who I was to her and how I thought about our relationship. And then we decide to do this work together. I leave the Walt Disney Company. We move to Austin, Texas. We join forces in a company that she created. And, and in doing the work, though we made the decision to do the work before her biggest book came out, a, a book called Girl Wash Your Face, we had no sense of what it might mean to the business or what it might mean as a standalone feature of the business. And it went on to be the second biggest selling book of the year. It sold about 3 million copies last year. Craziness. It is a unicorn of an experience, but it also in unlocking a bunch of opportunity for the company, 
saw my wife out earn me on a scale I had no concept could possibly ever befall <laughs> us. And it triggered for me something that sat in my unconscious until I was comfortable to bring it to the light. And that was because of this role that I had historically played as provider, though there weren't truly many times where she needed to use that backstop because of the way she was running her business, that it existed, had me believing on some level that her needing me or the fact that she could turn to me if she needed to was part of the reason why she loved me, part of the reason why she wanted to be with me. And in the absence of her needing me, she does not need me at all, right? I fell into this lie that, oh, wow, now that she doesn't need me, does she still want to be with me? And the, the beautiful thing, and I mean, number one, like just in the ridiculousness of saying it out loud, the idea that contingent love, that love that is requiring something like financial support is love at all is insane. That is not love. That, that there's nothing about that that is love. And so like talking it through and having a conversation about it, good news. It was like stomped out almost immediately when in our having a discussion, the kind of love I know us to have was so much fuller and bigger because of being able to really get to the bottom of, no, 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 no. It had nothing to do with your provision. I, I, you know, I think it's neat that you maybe identified in some way that provider was part of what I found in you as attractive, but sorry, buddy, that had nothing to do with the equation. And so for anyone who has experienced anything in the gender roles, here's how things have historically worked or the way that value for men providing in a certain way extends to them being a certain thing to their partner or to society, uh, we just have to deconstruct it completely. And for me, the way that I was able, more than obviously diving into conversation with my wife, really changed the way that I was able to think about it. I left where I was working in part because of an interest in greater impact. And the support of my wife doing a thing that she was placed on this planet to uniquely do, she is a vessel of impact. I mean, truly, being someone who can support her was a vehicle for me actually being able to tap into something that I'd been so longing for. And so if in any way, if you're a stay-at-home dad, if you are helping support her business, the way that you, if she starts earning more, but in that earning more is affording your family experiences or whatever it might be, can change the way that you've afforded weight to what it might mean to you and instead think about what the impact of her work might mean to the world, the impact of her work, what it might mean to your humans. I mean, sidetrack, two seconds, but this is an important thing. My wife gets asked this question a lot, and I do not ever get asked this question. And the question ends up being, what will this do to your kids? As in, what will all of this work? What will doing this work? What will the travel that at times comes with this work do to your kids? I don't get this question because I'm a man. She gets this question because she's a woman, because there is some presupposition in the asking of the question that women couldn't possibly do both. They couldn't possibly be a person who is a good mom and also someone who has ambition or someone who uh, works outside of the house. And I struggle with it. It's like one of these things that get my, gets my blood boiling, in part because the question is just being asked through the, the lens of the wrong tone of voice more than anything, because I have to ask it through, what will this do to our kids? What would it do for our kids to see me supporting their mom? What will it do to our kids? I have three boys. 
And those three boys will never for one second question if a woman can be a two-time number one New York Times bestselling author, stand on stages in front of 10,000, run a boardroom, have a line at Target. Like It will never be a thing that they contemplate or question because of the fact that they have a model in their house representing what is possible as much for women as men. And I also have a daughter and my daughter will never have to read my wife's book, Girl, Stop Apologizing, because she's never one time seen modeled in our home a woman apologizing for living into who God created her to be. So if any of you men who are listening are wondering what might it mean to you or what might it mean to your kids to be supportive of your wife, it will mean everything. So many points in there, Dave. And and two that I want to circle back on is you mentioned the the role of the provider. And I think that's where a lot of men get stuck because it's just been ingrained in them that they have to be this provider. And when you flip that, as you and Rachel did, right, where she kind of took on more of the breadwinner mentality and you took the support role, it's a whole new mindset shift that you have. And I believe that in order to experience a new miracle, you have to have a new mindset. Because if you bring an old mindset into a new miracle, guess what happens, right? You just bring all that baggage and stuff with you. So you had to reframe and reshape the way that you approach that. And you've done an excellent job in explaining that. I don't want people to miss is that you said this at the end, and it's so clear to me. And for your daughter, it's simple, right? She can see her mom, and she has a clear path to say, I can do anything, and I can achieve anything. But for your boys, what's also interesting is there's nothing wrong with the role you've taken and them seeing you take that role. That doesn't mean that you're any less of a man. It doesn't mean that you are any less of a, a career guy, right? It doesn't mean any of those things. And in fact, them seeing that is probably more positive because they now have a different view on things than most other kids who just see this plutonic role of what mother and father should be in a marriage and in a business relationship. So you've not only redefined it within your own marriage, but you redefined it for your children. And that's only going to set them up for benefit down the road. What would you say to a, a parent who, you know, maybe they're not going to wholesale make the change, right? And leave their career and support their wife. It doesn't have to be that, does it? Can it just be simple things in the house and in their daily way that they approach their, their marriage and their relationship to teach their kids the same principles? Of course. I, I mean, everyone does life differently. And it starts with your personal values and your relationship values. If you have not defined what you personally value, if you not have not with your partner sat down and had a conversation about what you as a couple, as a family unit value, you need to do it. Because if you have one set of values and they have another and they are misaligned in any way, you're in trouble. As for our house, we've had this conversation for a very long time. My responsibility for raising these children is 100%. Rachel's responsibility is also 100%. It is not 50, 50, 70, 30, 20, 80. It is 100, 100. Now, our our commitment to each being 100% responsible for raising our humans or keeping our house does not necessarily mean that we have full access to all of ourself in any individual week because our schedules are totally different. But our commitment is that we are 100% responsible. So what we have to do is sit down and have conversations about how life affords us to be 100% present and available for the responsibilities that we each have on an every single week basis. And it totally varies and is totally different. But if you are able, if someone has a home where they have decided that the woman in the relationship if it's a man and a woman who are married, if the woman in the relationship does certain things and the man in the relationship does certain things, and that works for both parties, fantastic. That is the hope for a goal. But if you decide that you want to share or split responsibilities down the middle, or you want to do things, you know, you just have to come to agreement as to what those things are and model them for your kids. Uh, we are modeling that I am as responsible for 
doing dishes and laundry as Rachel is in in the way that we try to split up who does what. But that's a reflection of our family values and our personal values. So you got to start with what is important to you and what makes sense for your family. And here's the blessing, the great news. It's a relief, hopefully. What works for my family will not work for every family. What works, what, what is normal in our family is not a normal thing for any other family. In the same way that what works for your family and what is normal in your family doesn't work necessarily or appear to be normal outside of your home, and that is just fine. If you are worried about whether you're doing it right or how to do it right, you're looking outside of your family unit. I want to offer you an alternative opinion to a parenting book. Do it your way. This is Burger King as far as I'm concerned. You can have it your way, but you have to decide what way works best for you. What way models the kind of things you want your kids to grow into adults and believe because as much as they, yes, will develop their own beliefs, many of their capital T truths are going to come from you, their family of origin, and you now are in the molding phase. You are in the modeling phase of what they will take away of what a family does, of how a father shows respect to and and shows up for a wife and vice versa. Yeah, that's, that's so powerful. And I thank you for sharing that because I think there can be this, you know, look, it's Dave and Rachel Hollis, right? And you guys get put on this pedestal and this platform. And I appreciate you just being transparent and laying it out there in a very direct manner because anyone can do this and they need to do it for themselves based on who they are and where they are and what their own value sets are at the same time. Um, what I love about your book is you lay out a really clear path and plan for others to follow. So they get insights from someone who's been there before and tried and failed many times. And, you know, there's lots of other content out there like that to help shape and mold those values. So thank you for sharing that. Very important. As we near the end here, Dave, I'd love to ask you in the wrap up and the conclusion of the book, you talk about intention and discipline and intentionality. It's a lost concept in our society today. So what does intentionality mean to you? And how do you apply that to your life? Well, I have really been connected to this idea. It's not even in the book, but I'm going to talk about it anyway, because I think it's super important. I, I went and had this experience of just disconnecting from technology, from my family. I sat on a rock in the middle of the desert for two and a half days at the turn of the year. And in the midst of trying to figure out how 2020 was going to unfold for me, I did not see all of this quarantining coming, but I, I definitely spent time thinking about who I wanted to be. And in my thinking about who I wanted to be, this is all about intentionality. I first took a rear view look at what happened in my life when pain presented itself over the last three years, four years, because I wanted to see if there was any consistent variable that showed up that created pain in my life so that if I were to see that variable come up in 2020, I could stop it before it created the pain that it had previously. And what was interesting is that every time there was true personal pain, I had a single thing that was happening. And that was the person I said I was, either that I was proclaiming to be publicly, that I was telling my wife who I wanted to be as a husband, that I was telling my employees I wanted to be as a leader, that I was telling social media that I was, and the person I knew myself to be when I was by myself was disconnected. There was dissonance. I was saying I was one thing. I was saying I aspired to be one thing. And I knew myself to be not living up to that aspiration when I was by myself. And the distance, the incongruence, the dissonance that existed between who I was and who I am was the pain. And that was shame. It was regret. It was unfulfilled potential. And my mission in intentionality is to close the gap. Because hoping 
that I can show up the way that she deserves, that the team deserves, that I want to be able to is not a thing that life will just happen to make available to me. I have to engineer the very, very best way for me to show up the way I say I want to show up. And so intentionality to me comes through this simple math equation of if then. If I say I want to be an exceptional husband, then I have to actively and intentionally pursue my wife every single day. If I say I want to be an exceptional father, then I have to connect individually with each of my children without technology every single day. If I want to be a great leader of people, I can do the if-then statement over and over and over, but it informs what my morning routine has to look like to unlock the version of a leader, a husband, a father that I say I want to be so that I can create congruence between who I say I want to be and who I actually show up as. It informs the habits that I have. It informs the coping mechanisms that I use. It informs the way that I am really intentional about my spiritual, my mental, and my physical health. It informs what I put in my body, how much water I drink, all of that, right? And if you are not considerate of the if-then statement of your life, you will experience pain. You will experience the pain of regret. You will experience the pain of shame. You will experience the pain of underfulfilled potential and promises that you've made to the people that you care about and love most. So you have to game plan this life. You have to engineer your schedule. You have to engineer your calendar. You have to engineer your morning routine. My morning routine starts at 9 p.m. the night before. Because if I don't go to bed at 9 p.m., I can't be up at 5. If I'm not up at 5, I can't be in the stinking garage gym by 5.30. If I'm not in the garage gym, I can't move my body to change the way my mind processes my anxieties of the day. If I don't process my anxieties, I turn to coping. Like There is a cycle that I am trying to close the loop on that intentionality always comes back to. So you have to ask yourself, who do you want to be? And then you have to ask yourself, what do I have to do to make that version of myself show up? That is being intentional. Oh my gosh. I mean, people, if you didn't just get that, we're recording this on March 25th. I'm going to release this tomorrow just because of the timeliness and the quality of the content for what we're going through. Think about the opportunity that everyone has right now to be intentional, to ask those if-then statements, to go through that process of dissonance, and to recreate that new normal for yourself and that new routine and those keystone habits that you want to see in this tragic time that are going to merge with you in the future. Wow, Dave, such great content. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate you being on today. Amazing words. Um, since we are releasing this right now, anything you'd like to share as parting words with the audience just around the, the circumstances that we're in and what we're all going through together? Yeah. I, I mean, number one, this is going to be hard. This is already hard. And here it is, March 26th, the day that this is coming out. We are so early on into what we are experiencing that you may just now finally be adjusting from what was mourning the idea of life having to change, just uh, getting done, being frustrated, or just processing the anxiety. But I want to encourage you, it is time to turn the page, put your helmet on, and get in this game. Because your family, your partner, your children are looking for you to be the person who can persevere through something that will inevitably test every single one of us. That's the first thing. Two, there are stories that each of us tell as to why we have the capacity to do hard things or why we do not. 
And if you are listening to this, you have persevered through hard things before, and the evidence of your capacity to get through this exists so long as you, you can stay connected to those stories. Because if you start to think that you are not equipped, that you are not capable, that you are not built to handle what we are about to walk through, you will find evidence of those stories. But if you can go through the next two months, however much time it takes for us to get through this, anchored to a 100% certainty in your ability to persevere through this because of how you've persevered through things previously, you will find evidence of those stories as well. You are going to have to have unwavering, not compromising belief in your ability to push through what we're about to go through, because on the days when it gets hard, you will be tempted to believe the alternative story. And as you do, you'll see evidence of it. Stay connected to our ability to get through hard things. We can do hard things. And the last thing I'm going to say is in isolation, while we're quarantining, it is really easy to feel alone in our aloneness. And so whether it's through listening to podcasts like this or finding online communities or doing something that has you through FaceTime or Zoom or any of the ways that technology can connect us, find a way to honor and share your struggle with someone else so that it can be normalized. It is going to be hard. You are going to feel anxious. You are going to feel fear. That is your humanity. That is not you being weak or broken. If you do not represent that it exists to somebody else so that they can tell you that it is normal to feel the way that you'd feel, this will be an unbelievably more difficult slot. Stay in community and create some kind of empathy circle that affords you the gift of realizing that we are in this together and you are not alone in the way that you feel. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for sharing those inspiring words. And I just want to say to you personally, I, I appreciate you. And I want to say thank you. You and Rachel have both put out just amazing content and helped so many people. And I personally have been the benefactor of that. So is my wife and consume a lot of what you put out there. We had a chance to go to Rise Business this last year and um, we're able to learn from you and Rachel and Ed Milet and Brenda Bouchard and Tom Billu and the list goes on, right? I mean, just you had amazing people there. I still have notes that I'm trying to get through. And it was months ago, we just had so many takeaways. And now with the book, Get Out of Your Own Way, just even more great content that's helping a lot of people. So thank you, Dave. Really appreciate the thoughtful and intentional content that you're putting out there and the experiences you're providing for people to improve their lives and their businesses and in their families as well. So really appreciate you. Right on. Thank you, Justin. I appreciate it. You're so welcome. Well, y'all stay safe, be well. And until next time, be intentional, be engaged, and as always, make it a great Daddy Saturday. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Daddy Saturday podcast. Be sure to subscribe to join me and thousands of other fathers in the journey of raising good kids to become great adults. And be sure to check out daddysaturday.com for our latest resources, content, and epic ideas for how you can be a more intentional and engaged father. And we'll see you here on the next episode of the Daddy Saturday podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you